UNFTR. Your children and your children's children will be subjugated. They will be asked, how many vaccines have you had? Have you been a good little Nazi? Hail Fauci! This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast It's just what the world needs Another basic white guy who started a podcast But it's fun because he curses UNFTR is brought to you by overcaffeinated members W. Jeremy D., Tony, Sultan, Specker, Sam C., Ryan F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Pete M., Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Nettie Hugger One, Michelle H., Matthew, and the memory of Nettie McGee. It's no secret I've been struggling with this topic for quite some time. The topic is public education. Now, the reason I've been struggling with it has less to do with the scope of the subject though that's certainly part of it, and more to do with the gravity of it. Much like our healthcare series, it's impossible to tell the entire story, and there are certainly better people to tell it. Teachers, union leaders, administrators, advocates, we are all stakeholders in education, and we're products of education, or a lack thereof. There are so many familiar themes that will resonate with unfuckers, some of the same cast of characters that have maligned progressive initiatives for decades. Some date back much further than that, in fact, to our founding. So I want to briefly set some expectations and walk you through the approach to these episodes. Today is the first in a three-part series that explores the history of public education in the United States, promises made, promises kept, and concepts that went astray. It's a story that reflects both the best and worst of our intentions as a nation. We're going to start in the present day to frame the inquiry and draw on recent issues that positively and negatively affect the education system. And one of the first things to establish is language. To elevate the discussion surrounding education, not in terms of conflicts and divides, but the key elements of the discipline itself. If we're going to have an honest debate about the future of public education in America, it's incumbent upon us to educate ourselves on different modalities, the culture of learning, how children learn, and the external influences that impact one's ability to absorb, retain, and benefit from information. So it's going to take some time to get to the heart of what plagues the discourse surrounding public education. First off, it's toxic. And like most fundamental aspects of a society and political system, we seem to spend more time arguing about symptoms rather than root causes. And not without reason, mind you. Some of the symptoms are troubling. But the better approach to diagnosing problems is to dig to those roots, learn the language, the history, and I mean go all the way back to level set on why we have a compulsory education system in this country. So before we get into the histrionics and anger-inducing areas of the subject, we'll build a common foundation of understanding together. Considering this is a series on education, it feels like the logical approach. We'll end part one today with a critical and even-handed look at the opposition to public education in the United States as it is currently conceived. And this will undoubtedly be a downer for those in the field of education or for anyone who cares deeply about the subject. 
but it's vital to meet people where they are in this instance because education is a shared responsibility and a universal system. Now, in the second installment of the series, we're going to cover three of the four major eras in education in U.S. history, expansion, reconstruction, and desegregation. The third installment will bring us into the current era of privatization, the area in which we will spend the most amount of time. The issues surrounding privatization are of paramount importance to the discussion and time is of the essence because make no mistake, the same forces that have been pushing to tear apart the fabric of our democracy, those proponents of the free market fantasy, have been deliberately targeting public education for the past half century. And their victories are mounting. Their radical ideas are being mainstreamed. And all of it is coming at an incalculable cost to the most important stakeholder of all, our children. Now, in terms of sourcing, one of the central resources for this series is a book called Schoolhouse Burning by Derek Black. We have a plethora of sources to pull from, but I'm very grateful to have found this one. So I'll be referencing it a lot, especially in part two. Oh, and don't worry. I won't disappoint the Koran fuckers who know who pulled on the very first thread. Say it loud, say it with me, yo, fuck Milton Friedman. UNFTR is also sponsored by overcaffeinated members, Cringy, Joa, Jennifer S., GWookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S., Cindy S., Brian, Awesome A, Asoke, Alfie and Flash, and Asshole. Chapter 1. Framing the Inquiry. Democrats be like, I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Republicans be like, We don't need no education. And students be like. Oh man, I think the clock is slow. I don't feel turdy. <laughs> the pandemic exposed so many cracks in our system. The financial system, the supply chain, hunger, homelessness, the nature and meaning of work, our faith in science. We lost trust in our leaders, in one another, and at times the entire political system. As a nation, we were divided, and so we failed together. Either we heal as a team, or we're gonna crumble. Nowhere was evidence of this fracture more pronounced than in our schools. The Bureau of Labor and Statistics paint a cold picture of what transpired. 2.6 million educators and staff quit K-12 and higher education jobs. 1.3 million were laid off. And other separations, such as retirement, death, and disability, accounted for an additional 771,000. According to WSWS.org, quote, data from the first four months of 2022 shows that the exodus from the public education industry is ongoing. In the first four months of this year, 734,000 total separations took place in the industry, with the vast majority of those, 64%, or 474,000, being resignations, end quote. 
It's been in vogue to talk about the so-called great resignation, but oftentimes the news focuses on more high-profile industries such as tech. And while a great many people did indeed move around and change their circumstances, locations, and careers, perhaps no industry has been more rocked than academia. Throughout the series, we'll talk more about this phenomenon. Teaching during the pandemic was more than brutal. It was dangerous, sometimes deadly, and at all times, thankless. For a minute, it seemed like teachers might enjoy the same love and admiration as healthcare workers. But this enthusiasm dwindled, seemingly overnight, and teachers found themselves at the center of a vicious storm. But this didn't just happen. The fact is, teachers have been assailed and assaulted for many years. These once vaunted and beloved members of the community have been vilified in school board meetings, in the media, face-to-face -face at parent conferences, and in research papers from conservative groups that cast blame on the entire profession for having an agenda, being entitled, draining resources, and generally failing to deliver on the promise of education. The pandemic ignited rage in the public consciousness like never before and brought these visceral reactions to a boiling point forcing many dedicated educators to simply throw up their hands. The result should have been obvious to us all. But this was merely the extension of a trend that began in earnest during the Great Recession. As Black writes in Schoolhouse Burning, quote, between 2009 and 12, schools lost 300,000 teaching positions. Nationally, the number of people pursuing education degrees fell by 30%. When qualified applicants did not come calling, districts had no choice but to cancel courses, increase class sizes, assign teaching overloads, and hire substitute teachers to fill full-time positions. States had no choice but to waive certification, overlook college degree requirements, and let college interns teach full-time." So the first logical question here should be, why? Why did the recession have such a significant, quantifiable impact on the profession? Isn't the education system designed to be immune from economic activity, for better or for worse? The next logical step in this inquiry is to determine the impact this had on our children. Because doesn't it logically follow that if qualified teachers left the profession and the number of people seeking degrees in education declined so precipitously that it would have a negative impact on the quality of education? Of course. And right off the bat, you can see how money and funding contributes to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. This, my friends, is just the tip of the iceberg. The radical libertarian strain of the nation, now morphing into this bizarre new right movement, certainly weren't about to squander a crisis when the Great Recession occurred. And for shit sure, they weren't going to squander an even bigger one that came right on the heels of it. Before the industry had a chance to even recover and plug funding holes to bring the numbers back, along came the pandemic. There are 50 million children enrolled in K-12 schools in the United States. You remember, you are one of them. Most kids are enrolled in public schools. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, quote, between fall 2009 and fall 2019, overall public charter school enrollment increased from 1.6 million students to 3.4 million students, and the number of public charter schools increased from approximately 5,000 to 7,500. During this period, the percentage of public school students who attended charter schools increased from 3 to 7%, end quote. 
about 9% of children, or about 4.5 million, are enrolled in private schools. And in 2020 to 2021, about 5.4% were homeschooled. So those are the numbers, generally. In terms of performance, the numbers vary pretty wildly. Geography definitely plays a big role, but it's difficult to equate specific outcomes to regions. Now, having said that, there are periodic performance measurements undertaken in each state that give us an idea of which states thrive and which ones have persistent issues. The most consistent data revolves around 8th grade performance for math, reading, science, and writing. One important note here. These are the only disciplines that are tested, with comparable data being released in regular intervals. After the 8th grade, data are scarce, and even the most recent figures, which only account for reading and math, are at present from 2013. So when you hear performance measures quoted in the media, we're typically talking about 8th grade research. So I'll drop a link into show notes to the government tracking site where you can play around with the data. It's really interesting stuff. And you'll also find that, yes, the northern states do tend to perform better on these measurements than a lot of the southern states. But it's not a red state, blue state thing necessarily. So just take that at face value. We'll go deeper into measurements and outcomes, by the way. But we should recognize that one of the biggest issues surrounding data collection is the testing itself. This has been a major source of contention from these periodic surveys to the use of standardized testing in the college application process. This is one of those good debates that we should be having that has otherwise been co-opted by the bizarre theories about teaching race, human health, creationism, and any other symptom of education that the loudest voices have latched onto. So in terms of stakeholders, the children, all 50 million of them, are chief among them. Everything we'll cover is in service of providing access to quality education from an early age, but others include those who work in the field. In terms of teachers, there were about 3.5 million public school teachers as of 2018, a figure that has increased dramatically since an earlier benchmark in 2000, but before the precipitous decline in numbers during the pandemic. These teachers have varying levels of degrees and experience, and more than three-quarters of all public educators are women. 72% of public school teachers are in a union, compared to just 24% of charter school teachers as of the last available data. Now, apart from the day-to-day -day educators in the classroom, you also have administrators. From school secretaries to superintendents, administrators are there to keep the business of school running and are the ones tasked with many of the pedagogical frameworks that we'll talk about shortly. These are the people who stand in front of the school boards hear the concern of the faculty, and engage with the unions on matters of budget, tenure, discipline, standards, and reporting, and the ones who interact with the most vocal and increasingly vituperative stakeholders in any given community, the parents. And you know, with all the pressures of society today and the state of our politics, I think they're handling it pretty well. What had been planned as a typical school board meeting in Virginia's wealthy Loudoun County this week devolved into pandemonium. Shame on you! Shame on you! With hundreds of parents flooding an auditorium to accuse the school system of teaching their kids that racism in America is structural and systemic, something the school board denies is part of the curriculum. Chapter 2, The Structure and Language of Education. Right. So, obviously, the country is obsessed with hot topics like critical race theory, gender-neutral bathrooms, trans athletes, and this gem of a conspiracy. My friend, his wife, is a schoolteacher. And she 
works at a school that had to install a litter box in the girls' room because there is a girl who's a furry oh who identifies goodness. as an animal, and her mother badgered the school until they agreed to put a litter box in one of the stalls. Despite this tale being debunked and Rogan himself backtracking on his own personal story that never happened, this particular conspiracy spread like wildfire, and it even persists to this day, sadly. We've all lost our minds when it comes to what's being taught in schools, and so I thought it would be a really good idea to approach curriculums and standards from, I don't know, a teacher's perspective. Again, this isn't the fun and salacious stuff that makes for viral videos, and that's the point. Because we've retreated into our identity corners and suddenly become experts in education, we've drowned out some really important concepts and building blocks. So let's step back a bit before we detail the grievances of the mob and do a little learning ourselves. You've probably already grown weary of hearing me drone on. <laughs> what? What? I'm on the edge of my seat. Really? Yeah, so let's invite these two assholes to enlighten us with a partial list of important terms and concepts from the resilient educator and some other sources. All right, first we have pedagogy. The term pedagogy refers to the strategy of how educators teach in practice and theory. This is a wide-ranging and all-encompassing term that basically just says, this is how I do the voodoo that I do. You've got traditional methods like lecturing, rote learning and memorization, times tables, old-school classroom learning shit. This is usually referred to as behaviorism, where the teacher is the focal point of the classroom. Then you have concepts like constructivism that believes children learn better in active rather than passive learning environments. This is most associated with Montessori or Reggio Emilia-style classrooms that use creative, self-guided playtime, especially in the early years. Pedagogy can also extend outside of the classroom in certain ways. For example, the concept of liberationism, popularized in Brazil, incorporated external societal factors into the equation. Most notably, the two biggest barriers to learning are poverty and hunger. So, under a liberationist pedagogical approach, learning environments are ones that incorporate real-life cultural experiences and examples to help draw students into a more democratic and pragmatic way of thinking, and that government and society have a role to play in minimizing structural barriers to learning. So if pedagogy speaks to the general approach and guiding philosophy of a school, then how do teachers and administrators structure classes and curriculum to fit them? I thought you were going to shut up for a minute. I'm, I'm just trying to help. Yeah, we got this. Since you brought it up, there are different designs depending on the approach a school takes, and these can obviously change depending upon class size, age, resources, etc. Some schools approach curriculum backwards, not in a negative way. It's called backward design, where you design a curriculum backward by starting with the outcomes, assessments, and goals first. Then there's design thinking, which comes from Stanford University. Under this approach, students are encouraged to ideate to solve problems by investigating and inventing their own solutions. You know, so we could create more geniuses like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. Ugh, stop it. Before we get into some other useful terms, a few more conceptual approaches warrant a brief review. There's something called an IEP, or Individualized Education Plan, which is actually a document, or basically a written plan as to how best to educate a student who requires learning accommodations. Or PBL, which stands for PAPS Blue Libin, or Project Based Learning, whichever you prefer where kids learn through problem solving. And when we talk about these different ways of teachings, there's an implication that there's a degree of individualization. A school can have an approach, but things like an IEP or PBL, design thinking and backward design are methods within these larger frameworks. And that means teachers have to be equipped to handle some or all of these. And to determine which learning path is appropriate for a particular child, there has to be coordination between teachers, administrators, and parents. 
Right. So one of the things that this collaborative team will attempt to determine is how to unlock what Dr. Carol Dweck termed the growth mindset. Helping kids move away from a fixed mindset where their internal voice tells them they just can't do something to a growth mindset where they believe in their own ability to learn, overcome failure, and push through challenges. One of the ways to help a child break through these mental barriers and begin to believe in their own cognitive abilities is referred to as scaffolding. This is where a teacher will attempt to model certain behaviors and concepts, then step back and support the child as they try to replicate them. Douglas Fisher and Nancy Frey liken this to teaching a child how to ride a bike. Here's how they frame it. Quote, in teaching a child to ride a bike, the training wheels serve as one scaffold. The adult running alongside the bike serves as another. In other words, the adult handles the harder parts temporarily while allowing the child to try out the easier parts. End quote. Okay, you can speak. Oh, why, thank you. And well done, you two. Gold stars for both of you. One of the most important modern figures in education who helped open the minds of education professionals to the importance of incorporating different modalities into the classroom is a gentleman named Howard Gardner. Gardner created the theory of multiple intelligences, recognizing that we all learn differently. Some of us learn by example, some by reading, others by listening. Some require a hands-on approach. So if we're going to advance and improve education and continue to evolve as a society, it's important to see the children to know them, to learn how they learn, and to create environments that foster the growth mindset. Here's Gardner himself. But once we realize that people have very different kinds of minds, different kinds of strengths, some people are good in thinking spatially, some people are good in thinking language, other people are very logical, other people need to do hands-on, they need to actually explore actively and to try things out. Once we realize that, then a education which treats everybody the same way is actually the most unfair education because it picks out one kind of mind, which I call the law professor mind, somebody who's very linguistic and logical, and says, if you think like that, great. If you don't think like that, there's no room in the train for you. So obviously, this is just the tip of it, right? And it doesn't even touch on specific areas of discipline like math and science, the humanities, physical education, and so on. The amount of scholarship on how best to teach what most would consider the fundamentals in school is staggering. The number of opinions from those who've never spent a day teaching are exponentially greater. Well, opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. And it gets even more heated when you get into the higher grades, like our obsession with STEM, which stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. Some well-intentioned people along the way tried to add an A to this for the arts and call it STEAM, but the basic idea is to add more hard math and sciences into secondary schools to theoretically make American kids more competitive in the tech sector. According to the National Association for Science, Medicine, and Engineering, quote, available research does permit several broad conclusions to be made. Among the outcomes reported are increased critical thinking abilities, higher order thinking and deeper learning, content mastery, problem solving, teamwork and communication skills, improved visuospatial reasoning, and general engagement and enjoyment of learning, end quote. But no matter how much great research there is about the importance of teaching the arts, music, and humanities to support creative mental development that fosters innovation in these same areas, adding more emphasis to science, technology, math, and engineering comes at the expense of art, music, theater, and literature. There are, after all, only so many hours in a day. Teachers and administrators have to consider mental health, socioeconomic, language, and physical factors as well. Provisions must be made for ESOL students, which stands for English for Speakers of Other Languages. 
Now, you can holler and bray that everyone in this country should speak English, but where exactly is this supposed to happen if not school? And what about college preparatory courses and approaches? What's better, advanced placement or AP courses or international baccalaureate IB courses? Do you know the difference? I don't. You know who does? Teachers. All of which circles back to a fundamental question. What are we trying to achieve with compulsory universal education in this country? This is where we should investigate some of the opposition to compulsory public education as a concept. As usual, it starts with money, as much of the consternation over public schooling is the use of tax dollars. So let's talk a little bit about how schools are funded and draw a straight line to some of the troubling performance metrics that critics rightfully point to. That will give us a good jumping off point to dissect the arguments surrounding funding, vouchers, school choice, charter schools, and all of the other hot topics that we'll cover in the coming weeks. With the stress of the midterms almost behind us, isn't it time to sit back, relax, and enjoy some freshly brewed organic fair trade shade grown bird friendly native roasted coffee from Unfucking the Republic? Just brew up a cup, turn on conservative media, and watch them drown in their own fucking snowflake tears. But I don't know about you guys, I'm shocked there was a no red wave. I can't believe John Fetterman won. I can't believe it. This was not only not a red wave. It was not a red tide. It was barely a red trickle. Stand by Herschel tonight. If you can give, give. If you know somebody that can give, ask them to do it. TeamHerschel.com Mmm. Damn, that's good. Go to UNFTR.com today and choose from our fine organic selections like Unfuck Your Morning, Unfuck Your Afternoon, A Decaffeinated Unfucking, or my personal favorite, Mellow Maynard. Named for our beloved John Maynard Keynes. When you boil it all down, what does a man really need? Just a smoke and a cup of coffee. Chapter 3. The Opposition All right, and we're back. So before we get into specific areas of opposition to compulsory education in the U.S., let's quickly review the basics of funding. One point of reference that you've heard me make before is to remember that our federal budget for military spending alone is around $1 trillion when you add it all up. There is no universal formula for funding education, but there are some standard guidelines. Now, the pandemic era is tricky because the federal government had to step in to shore up so many parts of the economy. So the best and cleanest data available come from the 2019 school year before the world fell apart. For that school year, it's estimated that a total amount of $770 billion was spent on public K-12 education. The funds come from a combination of local, state, and federal tax dollars, but the proportion of funding does vary. Most of the onus falls upon the state and local governments, and they all have their own formulas for how best to distribute the funds. Some of the poorest districts in the country will receive federal funds as a backstop to provide school essentials and fill in budget gaps. Now, as one might imagine, one of the most visible signs of funding disparities are in communities of color. The stubborn legacy of Jim Crow and redlining persists to this day, as certain deliberate and other de facto segregation policies artificially divided communities throughout the nation. For example, a 2019 analysis by Ed Bild found that, quote, 
predominantly non-white districts received $23 billion less than predominantly white districts from state and local governments, despite serving the same number of students, end quote. Adding to these historical challenges are more recent funding issues that exposed cracks in the system, beginning with the Great Recession. Go all the way back to our budget episodes, and you'll recall that states are required to present balanced budgets. Only the federal government has the ability to run massive deficits to finance mandatory and discretionary spending. So during the downturn beginning in 2008, state budgets were slashed and much of it was taken from education spending, one of the largest ticket items in a state budget. Moreover, because of the Obama administration's tepid response, federal funding was used for only a short period of time to shore up budgets before tapering off after the worst of the decline. So while it had the desired short-term effect, many of the states remained in austerity mode after federal funds ran out. According to Pew Charitable Trusts, by 2019, 17 states spent less than what they did in 2008 in inflation-adjusted terms. In terms of how we rank around the world when it comes to funding, by the way, here's a quick snapshot from the OECD. As a percentage of GDP, public and private spending on education in the U.S. is slightly below the OECD average for early childhood education, significantly above average for primary and lower secondary education, and below average for upper secondary education. So these statistics are pretty interesting. The U.S. still ranks pretty high in terms of tertiary education and international students, but there's no question that our achievement and enrollment levels have been dropping comparatively, and funding for early education is particularly low in comparison. And, of course, the highest enrollment and achievement rates correlate heavily with the level of education among parents in the U.S., Another interesting side note is that our teachers spend a disproportionately high amount of time in the classroom compared to other countries. Now hold on to that thought. But what many in the movement to oppose various aspects of public education in America can point to are the recent achievement gaps due to the pandemic. Cuts to school budgets continued to mount since the recession and the pandemic exacerbated the situation dramatically. Our fractured response to COVID had a measurable and negative impact on our kids. Of this, there can be no doubt. According to the National Center for Education Statistics again, quote, average scores for age nine students in 2022 declined five points in reading and seven points in mathematics compared to 2020. This is the largest average score decline in reading since 1990 and the first ever score decline in mathematics, end quote. So obviously some schools and states did better than others, but on balance, we fucked things up pretty badly for our kids. It was a dark time and there's no way around it. We simply weren't prepared. But instead of having a rational discussion about finding our way back and trying to fill in gaps for our kids in critical learning years, many parents and public education adversaries are using this time to seize on long-standing conflicts and pile on the academic community with many finding interesting scapegoats like this brilliant parent who recently graduated from the Kanye School of Conspiracies. It was an offensive claim. The Jews, this speaker said, are profiting off COVID vaccines. And it's being taken from your money and given to these um, pharmaceutical companies. And if you want to bring race into this, it's the Jews. There was a smattering of applause. 
The pandemic released a rash of misguided hatred and misinformation with the public frustrated and looking to demonize and point fingers for the failings of our political system. Everything is now on the table, with parents emboldened to utter callous and outrageous statements at school board meetings across the nation. When I went to his bedroom to say goodnight and he was crying because of the abuse that he was enduring in this school system. And why did you stay in Mexico? <laughs> Instead of focusing on education, here's what's on the minds of Americans these days and grabbing the headlines. Critical race theory. American exceptionalism. Banned books. School prayer. Creationism. Wokeism. Mask mandates. Shutdowns. Trans athletes. Hybrid learning. School choice. Gender-neutral bathrooms. COVID shutdowns and mask mandates are just crowbars to open Pandora's box. Everything was on the table and mixed into a boiling cauldron of frustration and misinformation. Over at the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family, yes, this is a real institution, director Jay Richards recently penned an article for the Heritage Foundation that brings these disparate issues into focus and settles on what the new right considers the only option. In the article, he criticizes things like critical race theory as, quote, toxic and divisive ideas about race, or the more shocking and radical gender ideology promoting the notion that some kids, perhaps many kids, are born in the wrong body, end quote. I hate you. Not to be outdone, Heritage Foundation president Kevin Roberts declared the recently passed midterms the perfect opportunity to right several of these perceived wrongs, writing, quote, states should connect school money to children rather than to school buildings. Universal school choice for everyone, rich and poor, conservative and liberal, would not just make schools better and more competitive. It would make them less of an arena for the culture war that is otherwise roiling our culture, end quote. I hate you! Of course, connecting money to students as though they are customers isn't a new idea. It's literally the concept and framework created by none other than Uncle Stinky Fart himself, Milton Friedman. And I especially hate you! This will be the critical piece of part three when we examine the privatization movement of school choice through charter schools and vouchers. Now, before we close out this episode, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to objectively listen to the opposition to clear through even the most toxic and troubling rhetoric. So I ordered one of the most popular current books about education called Race to the Bottom by a Daily Wire reporter named Luke Rosiak. The book stokes the hysteria surrounding this fractured and confusing time in the world to align the public health instincts to protect children and teachers with a more insidious agenda. The narrative thread of this book, which echoes the right-wing talking points, stitches the corrupt unions and evil administrator responses to the pandemic to their woke agenda and ongoing battle to infect the minds of our young. He calls the NEA a hardcore leftist organization. And from here, the blame game ensues and extends to the usual suspects. Woke parents on parent councils and school boards. The New York Times and its dangerous 1619 project. He takes shots at the NAACP and attempts to debunk critical race theory with anecdotes of achievement gaps in poverty statistics among Asian Americans. Even Howard Zinn gets dragged through the mud. Foundations such as Carnegie and Ford also get the business with Rosiak criticizing their, quote, politically progressive agenda and saying that they've always been, quote, fixated on race. But the most disgusting claim 
rests with the teachers themselves. Here's Rosiak editorializing and generalizing about teachers in America. Quote, The groupthink mentality of teachers and their penchant for taking advantage of opportunities to offload the work of creating lesson plans to others has allowed a handful of activist groups to dominate the lesson plans that teachers draw from, turning even curriculum repositories with no obvious ideological bias into propaganda warehouses, end quote. Remember that the OECD statistics demonstrate that American teachers spend more time teaching than teachers in every other country. This book is just packed with bold lies such as this and half-truths designed to vilify teachers. But the real fuck you and line of thinking that should send up warning flags and will inform the balance of the series are his closing thoughts in the book. Quote, After two years of immersion in the issue, I may have been too quick to criticize those whose instinct was to just walk away. I'm no longer sure America's public school system can be saved. It is difficult to reform the schools because policymakers deal with high-level changes, while implementation falls to entrenched insiders who will ignore or subvert them. The rot is too deep, end quote. There are two slippery slopes here that should be viewed with great concern. First is the obvious call to simply defund the public education system and privatize it, to treat children as customers. But the second slope is more pitched and dangerous. And that's the compulsory aspect of it. It's not too hard to imagine the phrase school choice gradually morphing into school is a choice. Now, you may think this is impossible. Well, the Supreme Court would never allow such a seminal change in the nation, right? They would never overturn an important precedent like this, would they? Suddenly, it's a lot harder to ask that question, isn't it? Now, let me really fuck with your head. Dig this. We're going to cover the complete history of the legal protection for education in the United States. But know this one fact before we do. Then square it with the direction these opposition forces are heading. No Supreme Court in our nation's history has gone so far as to call education a, quote, fundamental right. Because the right to education is not in the Constitution. Do I have your attention now? Here endeth part one. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. All right, folks, that was part one. Welcome into Post Show Musings 99. Thank you for uh, working through that with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, take a take a deep breath. You've done part of it. <laughs> Can do, will do. We've got a lot more to cover, and I mean a lot more to cover. So I'm excited to get into the next two rounds. I don't want to belabor any of these points, but we're going to draw the thread right from Milton Friedman's concept that he originated for school choice and children as customers and how to put competition into the free market of all ideas, including education, all the way to where we stand now through the growth of charter schools, voucher systems, and the de facto defunding of public schools, which is obviously contributing to the decline in public education in this country. It's a travesty. So stick with us on fuckers. Looking forward to the next series. And until then. Wait, I was going to say, mm -hmm. hey, maybe listen to the Milton Friedman episode in the meantime. What, what number is that? 23. <laughs> also, which episode do I get to complain about all my bad teachers? Three? 
post-show musings in three. Okay, perfect. I've got them all lined up. But you have to bring in a couple of really good ones too. Oh, of course. I have plenty of good teachers, but you know, we did a bit. We 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 definitely erred on the side of loving teachers here. Absolutely. Sometimes there are bad teachers, though. Yeah. Come on. You've yeah. never had a bad teacher? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Just want to make sure we're, you know. But even the bad teachers made me better. I can't say that for some of mine. <laughs> I'm talking about you, ninth grade math teacher. <laughs> well, as always. Unfucking the Republic. Is edited and arranged by sound design maestro Manny, Manny Faces. Faces. Hey, it is produced, lovingly produced, yeah. by the great and powerful you. Yes, that 99. is me. Hi. Mm-hmm. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. It's Taylor Swift. I'm your host, Max. All the original music is produced by Tom McGovern. Go to TomMcGovern.com. He of Jimmy Fallon fame recently. TomMcGovern.com. And he's going to open for Tenacious D. In New Year, on New. Why well, keep seeing in New Year's? In New Year's. In New Year's. Uh, on New Year's. That's amazing. Wolves of Glendale. So fucking cool. We're so proud of him. Yeah. Our little, our little son. Oh, our little he baby. He did it. This all grows up. Who is this written and hosted by? Me. And and distributed by my tenth grade to count social studies teacher who started all of this. Who was my tenth grade social studies teacher? And I've had the opportunity to tell him that since. That's good. Wow. I used to talk to people and I'd be like, who'd you have? And they'd be like, I don't know. And I would be like, how did you forget? I don't know, but. That's fine too. The end. For all the other shit, go to unftr.com. I'm struggling with my memory loss. Goodbye.